Bible. You might want one. Uh, we have some for you. They're on the back table here, uh, right by the couple candles there. Um, if perchance you weren't able to fill out a card and you wanted to, there's uh, two like clay uh, pottery pots back here and back there. I was going to make a joke about drugs, but I didn't think it would be appropriate, so I stopped. Um, those are there. Um, coffee's over here. There's still some bread and things over there. Please feel free to get up and, and get anything you'd like uh, at any point during this. All right. Does that sound good? Great. I want to start this morning by uh, telling you two stories uh, that will have massive implications on what we're going to do this morning, where we're going, what we're going to read, and hopefully uh, what we might learn or be challenged by. The first is this. Uh, I grew up going to Central Lutheran uh, grade school, which is over on Lexington, over in the Midway. And uh, of course, when you have children, you have them one at a time. And uh, I was the second boy, and so eventually there were five boys. And by about boy three, uh, I think we realized that Central Lutheran was not uh, a part of our taxes that we paid uh, to the government. And so we ended up moving to a public school called St. Anthony Park over uh, on the other side of the the fairgrounds. Um, But while I was at Central Lutheran High School, there was this, or Central Lutheran Grade School, there was a merry-go-round. Any of you guys ever been on a merry-go-round when you were kids? Okay, this one was classic. Uh, OSHA would have a heyday with these things. They were all metal, right? So when the sun came out in the summertime, they just baked. And then these poor little children who didn't quite understand physics and how you know, all this stuff worked would hop on these you know, uh, merry-go-rounds with their short shorts because they were growing and everything. And it would just like burn their thighs. This was the kind of merry-go-round. So it was all metal, one of these massive merry-go-rounds. And we used to play this game during recess where we would get on, a couple of us would get on, and then a couple of the larger boys, which was not me, would begin to spin this thing, right? And you can imagine what happens. So the thing starts to gain momentum, and, and, and then you're just like, you start at the center, and you're holding on, and all of a sudden your grip starts to slip because they're metal, and you're sweating, and, and you start to slide outward towards the edge of the merry-go-round. By the time this thing is over, you're literally, I remember hanging on the merry-go-round with my legs like flailing, and the people who were pushing were like, pushing, get out of the way, push, get out the way because these kids you know legs would would kick them until finally you couldn't hold on anymore and you would just be shot off the merry-go-round and you'd go like tumbling across the playground this was fun we thought this was fun and so we would just do it over and over and over again and this is it was that or kiss or kill and so I decided it would probably be better to do the merry-go-round thing but I just remember that vividly you know the whole merry-go-round deal and uh, they don't, I can't find any playgrounds anymore with merry-go-rounds. There's probably good reason for that, but uh, I'm kind of looking for one. So if you know of one, please let me know. Uh, <clears throat> so that's the first story with the merry-go-round at Central Lutheran. The second story is uh, I remember very vividly uh, when I was in junior high school, we took a field trip to Valley Fair. Do they still do this with junior hires in our public school system anymore? Okay, so I had never been to Valley Fair before. Shakopee was like the other end of the planet because I lived in St. Paul. So it was a big day, huge, right? Everybody gets on the bus and pack your lunch and put them in the big cub food boxes and hope you can find it when lunchtime rolls around. But you get on and everybody goes down to Valley Fair. And I, I, I remember as a kid going to the Midway at the, at the fair, right, where all the carnies are and the people that have the raspy voices and the scary guys. Hey, you, come on over here. You can win this bear for your girlfriend. And I'm like, dude, I'm five, okay? <laughs> Tone her down, right? Um, so the Carnies and, and the Mighty Mouse. Does anybody remember the Mighty Mouse? It was like the only, um, uh, what do they call those? Uh, roller coaster, thank you. It was the only roller coaster down there. And it was metal and rickety and like, 
your, your life is in your hands, it's scary. It's exactly what it was. Um, but so at Valley Fair, I was super stoked to go on like real roller coasters. You know, the big wood one, the white one. Have they shut that down yet? They ought to. It's <laughs> the corkscrew was the newest thing at Valley Fair, right? You remember when the corkscrew uh, first came out? It was like technologically advanced and far superior than any other roller coaster you've ever been on. You go on it now, and you'd swear you need a chiropractor. Uh, super, you know, it shakes you, and they strap you in, right? They've got the, the, uh, the harnesses, because everybody knows about the corkscrew. It goes upside down, that's correct. So you get on the corkscrew, and uh, as a junior higher, of course, you know, you're sitting next to some girl you don't know, hoping that you don't pee or vomit or something embarrassing like that. And so... You go out of the gate, and this is the best part of a roller coaster, you know what I'm talking about, where it comes around the corner, and it, and it, it starts to head up the hill, and then there's like this hesitation, and then it's just like, and it clicks in, and the whole thing gets like on the track, and then there's no turning back. Like, you are heading down the trolley tracks, and this thing is coming whether you like it or not. But the cool thing about the corkscrew, if you've never been on it before, if you've never been on it before, it gets up to the top, the first big hill, and it goes down, and then, of course, it goes around like this. And I remember being on it for the first time, this strange sensation of going upside down on this roller coaster, and you get to the top, and the, the back end pushes you, so you actually accelerate at the top, which doesn't help. Uh, but this feeling of being, like, smashed into your seat, I think pilots call those g-forces or something like that it's all about physics and how the laws of gravity work but there's this bizarre thing of it like propels you to the center it like pulls you in and it's really really an odd feeling so you you contrast the two experiences one being the merry-go-round and the other being the corkscrew now during each of the, these whoa each of these experiences i don't have a lot of room up here so i'm kind of nervous i feel like i'm going to step on something or fall over uh, during each of these experiences, I learned something about the world. I learned something about the laws of gravity and how things worked, how they acted on humans. Uh, I, I, and I, as I reflect back as an adult, um, I realized that these two experiences are embedded, or embedded in these two experiences are two fundamental dispositions of the human heart. Now, you may be thinking I'm crazy at this point, but hopefully by the end of this, you'll, you'll, you'll track with me. And I think that these two dispositions of the heart actually have a great deal to do with what it means to be the people of God. And it's this idea, uh, what it means to be God's people, that we've been kind of just exploring and discovering and talking about in these first couple preview gatherings for Awaken. So if you've been here, this is review, but if you, if you, you weren't, this is hopefully catching you up to speed. Preview number one, we talked about, um, we're, we're working through this phrase, waking up to God's dream for the world. So in the first preview, we talked about what does it mean to wake up. And we, we talked about this this fundamental belief as Christians that, that all of humanity is asleep. As this great line by C.S. Lewis, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we are all born into this thing called humanity, and in some way, shape, or form, we're asleep to real life, to the life God intended us to have, and that something needed to happen in order for us to wake up. We believe that happened on the cross in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
uh, said differently in preview number two. We, we said that there, there essentially existed at one point in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, this beautiful, perfect, uh, harmonious, the, the Hebrews call it shalom or peace that existed in creation. That this existed at one point and this was God's dream for the world. So something has happened and, and, and this has gone amok and we need to wake up to the reality that God had for us or intends for us, which we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Everybody's still tracking with me. So we need to wake up to God's dream. And today we want to talk about this idea of for the world. Now, most Christians, or at least I shouldn't say it. Let me back up. Erase what you just heard. The Christians that I grew up with or that I grew up hanging around had this idea, this belief. Have you ever heard the phrase, in the world but not of the world? You've heard this before? And it actually was played out in this antagonistic sort of stance towards the world that we need to sort of separate ourselves and back ourselves up and often, not literally and physically, but kind of you know, protect the truth of God and, and wait until Jesus comes back and just kind of hold off the world until we, he does. Um, I'm obviously speaking uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek, and I don't think that's a very good understanding of the way things are. Uh, I think that God's dream has always been and continues to be for the world, that God is for the world, that he's for the world that we live in. And so this morning, I want to talk about what does that mean for us at Awaken. So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 9, if you have your Bibles. And again, if you don't, there's some in the back there. Luke chapter 9, and I want to read from uh, starting in verse 28. This is Luke's gospel, and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find this story, and it's called the Transfiguration, and we'll read a little bit about it. Um, So if you would, if you're going to follow along, great. If not, just listen. And would you please stand with me as we read uh, God's word? Says this in Luke chapter 9. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in, or at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. God, as we uh, look into this, this story, this passage of scripture, would you, uh, by your spirit, open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you would say to us this morning? Uh, would you challenge us uh, in ways that maybe we don't even know we need to be challenged? Um, God, we want to give you permission um, to be with us in this space, not that you need it, but we want you just to know that our hearts are open to what you would say. Uh, and so we ask that you would do that in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> now again, 
This story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John's the only gospel writer who leaves it out. They're pretty much exactly the same, except for some small details that Matthew leaves out. For example, when Luke says uh, they didn't know what they were doing, they were scared, Matthew leaves that out. But the story is found in all three Gospels. Um, Here's just a little bit of background, some interesting things about the passage before we kind of get to what I want to focus on. Um, Many, many times as you read the scriptures, and, and as we will here at Awaken, and as you do as individuals, you will find that in the Gospels and often in, in, in the New Testament where Paul's speaking, he uses Old Testament motifs or he uses an Old Testament picture or story or experience that the Israelites would have had and he uses them to, to, to tell a new story in a new way. Maybe he changes one little thing here or there and that little thing that he changes is actually the key to unlock what he's trying to say. So for example, I think it's in Mark's gospel, there's this time when Jesus is, uh, he, he prophesies or he reads from a scroll or something, and he says basically like this is fulfilled in your midst like here today now, uh, which he's saying something about himself that the people that were listening got all fired up about. They didn't like what he was saying. Basically they think he's, he's claiming to be God or connected to God, which is not okay. So they take him out to a cliff. You guys remember this story? They take him out to a cliff and they're going to stone him. And the gospel writer says essentially this, that it's a bizarre ending to the story if you don't know what Mark's doing. It says that Jesus passed through the crowd. And that's how the story ends. So these people get all fired up. They're going to kill Jesus. They take him out to the cliff, and Jesus passes through the crowd. End of the story. Bizarro. If you don't know what motif or what story, it's actually called metalepsis is the scholarly term for it, where an author will tap into a story that everyone would have known and then sort of re, uh, maybe reinvest it with new meaning. So what's the story that Mark's actually tapping into by Jesus passing through the crowd? Anyone? Oh, what? I, I heard a guess over here. Passover, what was, uh, think of the Exodus. What's a, a moment in the Exodus story the Red Sea, right, where, where Moses parts the Red Sea and the people of God go through the Red Sea. And actually, the Hebrew scholars believe that in that moment, that, that as the Israelites passed through the canal of the Red Sea, that they were birthed as a people. So it's like the birthplace of Israel. So what's Mark doing by telling the story in that way? He's making a connection between Jesus and Israel, the people group that was birthed in that moment, and trying to say, actually, there's something new going on. There's a new Moses. There's a new Israel. There's a new kind of thing. There's a new exodus happening. You still following? In this passage, there are exodus things everywhere. If you go back and you read it again, the exodus... uh, Uh, um, connections that Luke makes, that Mark makes, and that Matthew makes are absolutely unreal. Jesus goes up on a mountain, okay? Many, many big moments in Israel's history happened on a mountain. You've got Moses, you have Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. You've got Abraham. You've got, uh, when he goes up to sacrifice Isaac, you have Jesus now going up onto a mountain. If you're Jewish, lights are dinging in your head. Uh, His face changes. You remember when Moses saw the glory of the Lord? His face changed and it glowed, right? Mark and all the gospel writers say that Jesus' clothes became white. There's thunder and lightning. Same thing that happened on the mountain. Uh, And then they hear God's voice. And this is huge. This is massive. There's a Hebrew word that's B-A-T-H. We would say bath. The Hebrews would say bath. And kol, Q-O-L, the bath kol. And the bath kol is the voice of God. And the Hebrews 
listened for the voice of God. When the voice of God showed up, it was a way of, of legitimizing an experience or an event as something that was profound and connected to God himself. So the voice of God is a big deal. Uh, if you remember at the end of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament is what? Malachi. From the end of Malachi, which is basically to, uh, the end of the prophets, until the beginning of the Gospels when Jesus shows up on the, on, on the planet, you have what the Jews call the 400 silent years. And in that time, basically God goes silent. It's like he logs off. You know? He's just not available on IM anymore. He's not on Google Chats or anything. He's like nowhere to be seen. And of course, the prophets of old of the Israelites are telling them, someone is coming, prepare the way in the desert. Uh, Someone's going to come and change the way everything works. And of course, they believe this to be the Messiah. So they're waiting, 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 and they're hearing nothing. The other moment in the Gospels when they hear the voice of God, does anyone remember this? Jesus' baptism when the heavens open up and, and you hear this voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You hear the same voice. So the voice of God shows up. So the Exodus motif is all over this passage. Also, um, Luke chapter 9, if you were to, to render it literally, it says this, And behold, men too walked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory spoke of the Exodus in him, which he was about to finish in Jerusalem. The syntax is a little messed up, but that's the literal translation of the Greek. So the Exodus motif is all over this passage. Also, I met with, uh, I've got a friend, uh, a new friend that's growing into a good friend. Uh, her name is Lynn, and she's a uh, rabbi over at uh, one of the congregations over here on, on 110. And uh, I told her this last week, I'm like, okay, Lynn, here's the deal. I'm teaching on the transfiguration of Jesus, uh, which is, of course, in the New Testament. And Jesus is on top of a mountain, and, uh, and Moses and Elijah show up. And her first question, immediately she says, what in the world are Moses and Elijah doing together? Interesting question. If you're a Jew, there are two passages in the Old Testament that have profound implications to the anticipation that you feel as you wait for the Messiah. They're Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Malachi chapter 4. In Deuteronomy 18, which is a... a, at one point, it's Moses speaking, and in the next section, it's, it's God speaking. Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses is speaking. You must listen to him. Verse 18 goes on and says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. So a prophet like Moses is to be expected when the Messiah returns. So they're up on a mountain, and Moses shows up. Ding, 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 lights are going off. The other one in Malachi says this, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So as the Jews are waiting for the Messiah to come, they're, they're in the back of their mind, they're sort of waiting for Moses and Elijah to show up. They're, they actually believed Elijah, if you know the story, didn't die. He was just taken up into heaven, I think on a chariot, if I have my Old Testament correct. Uh, and so he never died. So they're waiting for Elijah to physically come back and they're waiting for Moses. And so there's this bizarre connection between Moses and Elijah and the Jews' anticipation of the Messiah coming, and they all show up on the mountain of transfiguration. The question that I want to focus on this morning is why does Peter respond the way he does? Do you remember what he says? 
So the lightning, the thunder, Jesus, his face, the voice, the whole deal. And Peter says, it's good for us to be here and allow me to build you a tent, a structure. Let's build you a house. One for you, Jesus, one for you, Moses, and one for you, Elijah. Luke goes on and says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a little confused. But why does Peter respond in that way? I mean, of all the things going on, looking back at it, it's so crystal clear what's going on here. Jesus is being represented as the new Israel. He's, he's tapping into the exodus and this new exodus that he's bringing about for all of humanity, for all of creation. There's all this going on and Peter says, you know, it's good for us to be here, like right here on this mountain. Let, let me build you a tent because that seems like a good thing to do. Why does he respond in that way? Uh, <laughs> I mean, of all the moments for Peter to speak, if I'm him, that's not one of them, right? I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and just take it in. Just, just watch how it goes down. Uh, again, Luke tells us he doesn't know what he's saying. Mark says he doesn't know what to say because they're frightened. What's going on here? Here's one possible interpretation. If you're going to study this passage and you're going to dig a little deeper, you might find this connection. For the Jews, there's three major festivals, three high and holy days. One is in the spring, one is in the summer, and one is in the fall. Now, each of these festivals taps into something that happened in the Old Testament, usually connected to the Exodus story. This particular one that happens in the fall is called the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Ingathering. Uh, It was connected to harvest time. And so the symbolism is, of course... That if you're a Jew and you were a part of the Exodus, you're wandering around out in the desert and God continually sustains you and provides for you. That that your work in the field, your planting of the seed, it actually, it's ultimately up to God because he causes the rain to fall. He causes the earth to grow things. He gives life and he sustains and provides for you. And so in this festival in the fall, what they would do is they would build these booths, the festival of booths or ingathering. And they would build these booths to symbolize these temporary dwellings that they continually had out in the desert while they were a part of the Exodus. Um, Zechariah, interestingly, the prophet Zechariah, connects the festival of booths with messianic prophecy, with messianic expectation. So if you read Zechariah and you start to hear this language, he often connects it to this anticipation and promise of the Messiah that the Jews are waiting for. So some would argue... And the timeline's a little fuzzy, so you can't really nail it down that whether or not the transfiguration event happened during or connect, you know, near the the festival of booths. But some would argue that this is Peter, and he gets it. He realizes, based on the prophets of old, that what's happening here is that Jesus shows up on a mountain. You've got thunder, you've got lightning, you've got his face glowing. You hear the voice of God, the bot call of God, which has been silent for so long. You have Moses and you have Elijah. And he goes, aha, I've got it. This is the festival of booze. That's why we do this, because we're expecting this Messiah. So what should we do? Build you a tent. Because that's what we've been doing the whole time, right? So that's one interpretation. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm going to tell you that I don't think that's what's going on here. Because of Peter's track record, number one, Peter is a total doofus most of the time. He says things that are off the wall. He, he tells Jesus, uh, you know, that, that he's not going to die and that he's going to protect him. And then Jesus calls him Satan. He cuts off the guy's ear in the garden uh, before the crucifixion. He does all kinds of things that usually are not on the right track. He's like, Jesus, I don't get the parable. Can you explain it to me? 
So Peter is not the sharpest tack in the, in the, the tool sheet. He's not the brightest bulb in the package. Um, also, Luke and Mark go on to tell us that Luke, or, or that Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. He's, he's not really sure what's going on, and so he just blurts something out. So I think it's my own personal estimation that there's something else going on in this passage that Mark and Luke specifically want to tell us something else that's going on. Why does Peter respond the way he does? Follow me with this logic, okay? We've been talking about God's dream, this thing that was in the heart of God from the beginning that welled up inside of him or it uh, and then caused God to create, to speak, and creation to come forth. Whatever was in his, whatever motivated that and from, from wherever that flowed out of, there was this intent to creation. And the intent of creation is relationship. Uh, if God's dream is for the world and God's dream is relationship, and we know in the story of the Bible that that goes wrong in Genesis 3, and the rest of the story is about the restoration of that relationship, providing a way by which rest, uh, redemption and, and reconciliation and all of those words uh, can happen again in creation. That's what God's dream was in the beginning, relationship. This is what God's dream remains to be now, relationship. How does he execute it? So if in the beginning God's dream was relationship between him and, and us, and us and each other, and us and the world we live in, if, if the dream was shalom, peace, harmony, relationship, and that gets broken in Genesis 3, then how does God execute or, or, or follow up or invest himself in the plan to get it back, to make relationship possible, to make the dream of God, the intent of, of God for creation happen? The answer to that question, of course, is Israel. In Genesis 12, he calls Abraham, which begs the next question. If God's dream is relationship and it's broken in chapter 3, and then he goes about restoring it through Israel, what happened? In order to answer that question, you need to know two things that are really, really important about Israel. Number one is this. If you take notes, now would be a good time to start. I'm only a half an hour in. Number one. God's restorative action in the world has always been connected to land. It has always been connected to a physical, geographical place in time and space. Genesis chapter 12 is the beginning of God's covenant with, with, people, uh, with the people of Israel through Abraham. I'm going to read a number of passages, and if you want to do your own study, you can find hundreds more that actually talk about this. But I would argue that almost every time the covenant is talked about, you have God talking about land. Genesis, so we'll list them up here, and if you want to do further research, you can. Uh, Genesis 12, the first one, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Genesis 13, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. Genesis 17, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants and I will be their God. Genesis 28, he's now speaking to Jacob, so we're, follow, we're, we're further along in the timeline. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. 
Genesis 28, I, will, I am with you and will watch over you. Wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land. Will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. And then finally, uh, there's one more, but in Exodus 6, which is the classic passage of God giving him the four I am statements of, of God to Israel, he says this, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession for I am the Lord. If you're not convinced now, I can't do anything for you. God's restorative action in the world, his plan to execute through Israel was always connected to a space, to this beachhead that was to exist in the world. If you're a Jew living in the first century, deeply embedded into the psyche of what it means to be the people of God and deeply embedded into the definition of what it means to be God's people is land, a physical location where God said, you will have this. Now, never mind the fact that the intention of the land was to be a beachhead. It was supposed to be a beacon, right, where, where the signal would radiate out into the world. Never mind the fact that, uh, that it was supposed to be uh, like the shalom, the peace of Eden was supposed to go out into the world from this place, from this land. Never mind that it was supposed to be a place where foreigners and aliens and people who were estranged from God were to find refuge and home and relationship. Never mind all of those facts, but in the original intent of the land was to be this beacon, this beachhead in the world. So if you're a Jew, like you cannot separate land and what it means to be a Jew. Connected to God's restorative action in the world through Israel is a physical location. Secondly, you have to know, if you're going to answer this question, what happened, what went wrong, where did it go awry, you have to know that God's presence among his people is connected to a thing, which is also connected to a place. So if you follow, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 25 if you want to. Exodus 25. This is the, the Israelites are, are out of Egypt. They're, they're now wandering around and God gives them some instruction about what they're to do uh, to worship and to gather as a people. Exodus 25 is about the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember the, the story of uh, Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade, is that what it is? You know, where the guy opens the Ark and his face melts at the end, right? That's the Ark that we're talking about, except not Hollywood. In chapter 25, verse 22, it says this, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. It's called the Shekinah glory of God, which is the actual physical manifestation of God's presence in the world. That's what they called it, the Shekinah glory. It was to rest. It actually like resided on and in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, if you follow in verse chapter 26, is located in the tabernacle, which is this place that the Israelites were to set up in order to worship God. Now, if you go to Numbers chapter 9, it's this bizarre um, account of they, uh, the Israelites got up and they moved and they camped. And then the cloud moved or the pillar moved and they got up and they moved and they camped. And then the cloud moved again, and they got up, and they camped, and they moved. And then the cloud moved again, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. What's going on here? The people of God followed the pillar and the cloud, and when it moved, they moved with it. And when they stopped, they would set up camp. 
And when they set up camp, they would set up the tabernacle. And inside of the tabernacle, they would put the ark. And then they would organize themselves in a circle around the ark and around the tabernacle. And so deeply embedded into what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be God's people is this idea that God's presence is here. And we surround ourselves around this thing called God's presence. And it's the temple and the ark. That's where the worship of God takes place. That's where all the action is because that's where God is. Are you following? Are you starting to connect any of the dots here? Why does Peter offer to build a structure? Because it's all he knows. He's a Jew for crying out loud. That's it. It's in his story. It's in his history for thousands, hundreds of years. The people of God have been one. Can, like God's, God's action in the world has been connected to land. And in that land, connected to a physical place and space is God's presence. So Peter hears the voice of God. And what does he do? This is an important space. This is an important location because God's presence is here. So let's build a structure and let's gather ourselves around it. Let's make it holy. Let's figure out how to keep it. Let's figure out how to protect it. Let's figure out how to surround ourselves around it. That's all Peter knows. Here's the million dollar distinction. If God's dream has been for the world, it always has been and it continues to be, it remains to be. The flow of this reality, the direction of this reality looks a whole lot more like the merry-go-round for my childhood than it does the corkscrew. The flow of God's people in the world was always meant to be centrifugal, not centripetal. For those of you people who are not science majors, I've got the definitions for you. Centrifugal is this. It's from two Latin words, centrum and fugue, which means center and to flee. So it's literally to flee the center. Uh, it represents the effects of inertia that arise in connection with rotation and which are experienced as an outward force away from the center of rotation. That's centrifugal. Centripetal, on the other hand, it's a little harder to grasp, but it's this. Uh, do we have that one? Yeah, great. Uh, it's a force that makes the b a body follow a curved path. Let's just stop there. It's the corkscrew. What you feel when you're on the corkscrew that sort of draws you in is centripetal force acting on your body. It's actually usually, it comes from something else. So in this case, it's the rails that guide the, co the, 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 the cars on the track. It exerts centripetal force on you and it pulls you to the center. God's dream has always been, the flow of God's dream in the world has always been intended to be centrifugal, sending us out into the world. Sending, if Israel, if, if the land and the temple and all that were to be a beacon, this beachhead, it was to flow out into the world. It was to be this thing that radiated out. When Jesus comes in and he gets all fired up about the Pharisees and the people and, and, and throws the whole temple, what he's really ticked off about is the fact that Israel didn't get this. They've allowed, they've allowed Israel as a nation state and as an idea to be centripetal. Something that's been turned in on itself and that focuses on how do we get close to the center. Luther says that sin is the heart turned in on itself. I'm not a Lutheran, but that's still good theology. The heart turned in on itself. The problem is that the natural flow of the heart is centripetal. This is, this is what happens in Genesis 3. 
And this is what happens in Israel. And I would submit to you that the same temptation that lies in our heart, that Israel fell prey to, which caused them to be this ingrown kind of thing in the world and ceased to be the centrifugal force of God's people sent out, propelled, flung out into the world, didn't die with Israel, but still remains alive and well in our culture and especially in our churches. And this is something that we at Awaken want to say, that's bunk. That's not good theology. That's not a good understanding of God's people. That's... And so we want to be proactively, intentionally, we want to participate and partner and say yes to the God who invites us to participate in his dream for the world. Because it always has been and it continues to be. So we have to figure out a way to fight the, 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 the urge to, to do this and think that God's here, not there. To think that this place, because it's a church, is special and, God's, and the action's here, so we've got to get our friends here. We've got to bring them in here and get them here because this is where God is. That's bad theology. And it's a bad understanding of what the Spirit is up to in the world. God's Spirit is loose in the world, according to the book of Acts. And it's moving and acting and doing things way out in front of the church most of the time in the apostles and Acts. So our job isn't to say, how do we gather people in here so that they can see God because God's here, but to say, God, where are you at work in the world and how do we join you? Very, very different. This is so important, what we're doing this morning. And when we gather and we worship and we sing and we connect our hearts together, and we study the scriptures. This is really important, but this is not church. This is a group of people gathered in a room who, who align themselves with Jesus and who are the church gathering in this place. So the question for you and I, and the question for Awaken is, how do we participate in the dream of God for the world? How do we listen to the spirit of God, which is at work? How do we discern? How do we see? How do we find God's spirit at work in the world and then get involved in that. If you read the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles are consistently like catching up to the spirit. They get to some guy's house and they're like, what in the world? You're a, you're a Roman centurion. The spirit of God can't be here. And then they're like, well, let's see. Yeah, this happened, this happened. Yeah, the spirit's here. How'd we miss it? How frustrating and tragic would it be if that were the case for us. Where we show up and we're like, oh my gosh, God's spirit is at work right across our, like right outside of our door and we missed it. I would quit and probably become a plumber. <laughs> no offense to plumbers. <laughs> Something else because I would have failed in my role as a pastor and as a teacher and as a theologian and as a church person. A few observations as we close. Based on what we are learning about God's dream being for the world. First and foremost, we don't own a building for more reasons than cash flow. Okay, we're a young community. We're brand new. In fact, we haven't even started weekly worship gatherings yet. But we've intentionally put ourselves here because we believe something particular about the people of God in the world and the way in which God's spirit works. We don't own a building because the building isn't special. The bricks and the mortar isn't special. It's not that God is here or there, and if we build this structure, like Peter, let me build you a tent, because it's good for us to be here, 
is a misunderstanding of how God works and how God's calling us to be in the world. So this is an intentional decision that has to do with theology and, and some intentional decisions we've made to not own a building. God isn't located at the ark or the church. He's loose in the world. And finally, I would say, and I'll close with this story. Uh, we want to touch as much as we can with the hands, with the hands of redemption. Uh, I heard of a, a guy who had some daughters. And uh, if you have daughters, maybe this will make sense to you. Um, public bathrooms are a really shady place to be, right? You know, they're dirty. They're filled with germs. You don't want your kids to touch anything in there. So your kid says to you, uh, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom. And you're at the state fair with the carnies, you know. It's like, oh, gosh, you got to be kidding me. All right, babe, here's the deal. Get in, get out, touch as little as possible. Right? That's pretty good advice. I've actually heard, maybe not literally, but the way in which churches oftentimes act in the world is get in, get out, touch as little as possible. And I think, personally, that that misunderstands what it means to be God's people, what it means to be the church. And so our hope and our dream is that we'll touch as much as we can. That the world is not some virus that we can get if we get too close but that the world is God's good and beautiful creation that he made in the beginning and that he wants back and that he paid for by his son's death and resurrection. And so we're called as the church to get out with the hands of redemption and touch as much as we possibly can to say there's a new day, there's a new dawn, there's something new happened and it started with Jesus to demonstrate and announce the reality of the kingdom. That's our job. That's our role. So that's the journey, part of the journey that we're on at Awaken. And I'm so thrilled. I'm, people ask me, how's it going? Uh, Micah, tell me about your life. And I just say, I'm living the dream, baby. <laughs> living the dream. Uh, this is what I have always wanted my life to be about uh, since I came upon it. And so uh, we want to invite you to be a part of that with us. Uh, let me pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and we're going to uh, close with a song. And... Uh, we're also going to do uh, just a, a call and response. So if you've never done that, um, what you will say uh, will be on the screen behind me. And the idea is um, oftentimes our culture kind of isolates us and uh, everything's about individualism in America. Um, this is one way that we can together say that we're together, that we're in this as one, um, that we're not alone and so uh, Jess is going to lead us in that, and she'll read the leader part, and then together we'll just respond as a community uh, together. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll close. God, uh, thank you so much for who you are, for uh, all of the incredible um, things that we find in your word. What a beautiful, life-giving thing that it is. Thank you for the gift that it is to us. Um, God, may we be people who study it and who um, listen to it and who apply it and interpret it and make it real and applicable to us here in 2010. Uh, God, would you, as, would you, as a church, would you challenge us and invite us, uh, be clear to us as to where you are and what you're doing, what you're up to. Help us to have eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and courage to participate in it, God. Uh, we, we love you. Uh, we're grateful for 
the gift of forgiveness and redemption that we find in Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Spirit of the living God, fall on us. Mold us into new creations. Give us imagination with the way that we live. That we might not conform to the patterns of this world, but that we will be given a new mind. Give us a new way of thinking about our lives and vocations. Teach us what it means to be your church. God, we pray that all that you are would take root in us, that the fruits of the Spirit would be so inside of us that everyone we come in contact with would feel the goodness of your love. That they would feel love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control.